Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. We're very proud of that. Um, we get a lot of mail, and um, a lot of a lot of you are startups and early stage companies. So um, I've worked with literally hundreds of startups over the past few years, and I've seen very good startups get going and uh, fail. I've seen bad startups <laughs> succeed, and then uh, I've seen a, a lot of good ones but a hell of a lot of bad ones. And uh, so there's nothing like failure to teach you a great lesson. So I've outlined below um, 21 reasons that contribute to the failure of so many startups. So 21 reasons that are the most popular reasons, if you like, that startups fail. And I think that I've got a uh, pretty unique perspective on why so many brilliant entrepreneurs and so many great ideas fail. The first is that um, it's a small or an unscalable idea. You know, you, you really need, and particularly if you're chasing investment, to have an idea that appeals to everyone and anyone rather than an idea that appeals just to a very tight, narrow market. If, if it's just appealing to a niche market, do it yourself as a, um, as a lifestyle business because it won't appeal to investors. And your business must also be readily scalable. So if you plan it for a 1,000 people and it goes haywire, you need to be able to scale it up to 10,000 people very quickly. And uh, to do that means that you've got to focus mainly on technology because that's the best way to scale and it needs to be technology-driven rather than personnel-driven. The second reason that um, startups fail is it's just an insufficiently powerful idea. You need to have a really compelling value proposition. It's got to be a product that people say, I have got to have that. If people just say, oh, yeah, that'd be nice to have, well, it is not going to work. So unless it fills a very powerful need, there's an overwhelming chance that it will fail. The third reason that startups fail is because they have a poor business model. Now, most of the business models that we look at are not the most effective business models for the project. Not enough creative thinking goes into business model development. Entrepreneurs seem to be just far too optimistic about how easy it'll be to acquire customers. I've got this great thing. People are just going to flock in. Well, guess what? The first few might, the mothers, the brothers, the sisters, the cousins, the uncles and the aunties, but after you've got them, it becomes rapidly harder and rapidly more expensive to attract customers. So in many customers, in many cases, the, the cost of um, acquiring a customer, which is 
referred to as CAC, is actually higher than the lifetime value of the customer. And that's ridiculous. That's the quickest way to go broke. So the vast majority of entrepreneurs just fail to pay adequate attention to figuring out a realistic cost of customer acquisition. A very large number of the business plans that I see have no thought whatsoever given to this critical number. And their CAC is quite often greater than their LTV, which is their lifetime customer value. Fourth reason entrepreneurs fail is that they live in a vacuum. They come so focused on their own vision, they just lose perspective on the rest of the market. They launch businesses that they think are a good idea, but they never take the time to go out and find whether anybody's actually going to buy this stuff. Um, And I also have a lot of entrepreneurs come in and say, we're the only people doing this. I've Googled it. No one else in the world is doing it. Well, then we go out and we find a dozen people that are doing the exact same thing at various stages of development, and often they are way behind because a lot of entrepreneurs fail to realize that any entrepreneur with any brain whatsoever does not promote the product until it's 100% ready to hit the market. Otherwise, you're just asking for somebody to knock you off. Stupid. And if a similar product's been going around the venture capital um, traps and you come in second with the same idea, you are not going to get the money. People are just not going to give you the money. The fifth reason that startups fail is because they wait too long to go to market. Now, this is a very common mistake. Um, I've had a number of entrepreneurs that have come to me with an almost developed product, and I say to them, you know, get out there, begin talking to investors or potential joint venture partners, go out there and start setting the stage for you to hit the market. And I get the response saying, oh, well, we haven't completely developed it yet. I've got a whole bunch of bells and whistles that I want to add, and there's these things I want to do, and, you know, I'm not going to put it out there until it's absolutely ready to go. Well, in every single case over the last five, six, seven, eight years where somebody has waited, they have been beaten to the punch and they've lost. The sixth reason that entrepreneurs fail is because their idea just doesn't uniquely solve a big problem. And the more complex the world becomes, the more problems there are to solve. So it's got to be a big problem and your product has to be a way, way, way better solution than what's already out there or it's never going to get off the ground. Absolutely, positively, never get off the ground. It must make whatever the issue is far easy to address and far cheaper than current solutions. The seventh reason that new um, ventures fail is they've got no go-to-market strategy. They're often so focused on developing their new product, they just don't even think about a go-to-market strategy, which is a detailed analysis of how you intend to penetrate the market. You know, once you've got the product, how the hell are you going to get out there? What are you going to do? What steps are you going to take? And how are you going to pay for it? And uh, 
you need to have identified and tested a really profitable customer acquisition plan that's affordable or you'll lose. The eighth reason, no revenue model. I have, often have people come to me saying, I'll just get in all these eyeballs. People will come and sooner or later will think of a way to get revenue. Well, that ain't going to work and you're not going to get um, investors interested unless you've got a clearly communicated revenue plan. And you've got to bear in mind that there are some products that will never, ever be able to charge for because there's just too many free options available. And while they mightn't be quite as good, they're good enough for people to stay where they are. A lot of people say, oh, you'll make a fortune in advertising. Well, let me tell you, advertising-driven models are extraordinarily difficult because you're competing with all the big guys who are out there chasing the advertising. It's difficult, extremely. So you've got to have a revenue model. Insufficient focus is another reason that entrepreneurs fail. You know, they focus on more than one product at a time and by product. I mean, even trying to focus on a B2B product and a B2C product at the same time doesn't work. It dilutes your focus where probably neither of them will work. The tenth reason that entrepreneurs fail is just an inability to attract investors. You know, they send out business plans unsolicited and they don't get any money. There's absolutely no chance in hell of getting an investor by sending out business plans, 80 pages or something. They want one or two pages where they can look at it and say, that's interesting, I like it, I want to get more information. Otherwise, business plans end up in the trash. They want an investment plan so they can determine the risk-reward ratio. Is this worth doing? If you don't do that, you'll lose, which brings me to the next point. The 11th reason that I've got that um, entrepreneurs run uh, fail is because they run out of cash. You know, there's less than 1% of entrepreneurs are able to bootstrap a startup. The other 99% run out of cash for any number of reasons. They don't want to give up a piece of the company. I hear this all the time. I'm always going to hold 70% or I'm always going to hold 51%. Well, it's not possible. So... um, You know, others don't budget properly. They don't plan for how long it takes to raise rounds of funding. You know, their burn rate's too high, or it's a combination of all of those sometimes. You need to have enough funds to carry you for 12 to 18 months. Just because you think your product is good doesn't mean that any other bastard is going to think it's good. Number 12 comes back to the same thing. Try to maintain more than 51%. You know, most successful entrepreneurs go through and have a look at all the successful entrepreneurs um, whose companies have gone gangbusters and just see how much um, of their own company that they actually own now. Usually it's less than 20%. So too many entrepreneurs don't want to give up shares in the business. And an extremely wise billionaire investor friend of mine that's very well known, household name, once told me that it's not the percentage of the company that you own that's important. It's the number of shares and the value of each share. 
that really matters. You can have 99% of something that's worth absolutely squat and you're worth nothing, or you can have 15% of a company's worth a billion and you're doing okay, baby. Thirteenth reason that um, a lot of startup companies fail, they're greedy. They don't incentivate or motivate their employees. You know, to be successful, you need a team that's prepared to go the extra mile, climb over broken glass, day in, day out, over and over and over again. And to get your staff people to do that, you've got to incentivate them and motivate them really powerfully. Successful startups give at least 20 to 25% of the equity of the company in the early days to people who they expect to help them get there. So be prepared to give up 25% of your business to help you, to the people who are going to help you get there. The 14th reason that entrepreneurs fail is that there's just huge holes in the strategy. It's amazing how often, you know, one small element of a project is either not being costed at all because it's assumed that they're not going to cost anything and they're going to be really easy to get. And that's brought the project crushing down. You know, some issues are to be expected, but often what startups leave to be fleshed out later, like, you know, low-cost materials and availability of components and infrastructure, and they end up being project killers. So it's attention to detail all the way down the line. The 15th reason that I have that um, startups fail is poor leadership. It takes unique skills to run a startup, to be creative, to motivate and inspire people, to raise funds and to meet contact and listen to people who can give you valuable advice on how to move forward. All that is difficult for any one person. So nearly all of the successful entrepreneurs that I know are surrounded by a team of highly experienced mentors. It's about 1%. The 99% who don't usually fail. Now, the 16th reason that uh, entrepreneurs fail is because the team around them does not have the required level of skill. Sometimes, you know, startups get their cousin and their uncle and their brother and their best friend from school and they put them all together and they have them each working in various areas. But that doesn't make a good team. Getting the best people creates the best team and makes you successful. And very often, founders just can't get along. I've seen lots of startups where everybody hates each other's guts. And they work together just because they work together. And that creates a cancer and you fail. And um, often when the initial strategy fails, that's when all hell breaks loose and it falls apart because every business at some point needs to pivot. Most businesses do. And every VC will tell you that they um, The major thing that they invest in is the management team, the skill sets of all of the members of the team, not just one megalomaniac individual. The 17th reason that uh, startups fail 
is that they don't know when to cut losses. Entrepreneurs need to know when they should pivot. You know, it needs to be done while there's still funds in the bank when you can change direction. Very few startups begin on the right track and don't need to constantly correct their direction. But you've got to have the money to do that. And for most entrepreneurs, it's very hard for them to face the reality that their baby, that they've been working their guts out on, ain't going to cut it. You know, so they hang on and they hang on and they hang on, waiting for the miracle, waiting for the miracle, waiting for the miracle. Doesn't come, they go broke. <laughs> Number 18, the 18th reason that um, startups don't succeed is there's no burning passion or persistence. You know, unless you're frenetically passionate about your project, You'll never make it through the ups and downs of development. It's bloody hard. It's easy to get disillusioned. And investors look for people that are passionate, that are going to run through brick walls to succeed. That's the only way you can do it. And you're not going to attract the best management team and you won't attract the best investors investors, unless you have passion and persistence. The 19th reason that... um, entrepreneurs fail is that the market moves you know markets are highly complex with lots of moving parts and they're impossible to predict so some entrepreneurs just don't think ahead i go back to and i use i've used this quote for years and years and years but wayne gretzky who was the all-time great ice hockey player used to say i skate to where the puck is going to be not where it is now and too many people create products and services for the market as it is now and the market tomorrow is going to be different entrepreneurs need to do the same the 20th reason that entrepreneurs fail is they listen to bad advice from the wrong people you know they get lots of bad advice from unqualified sources often family and friends who tell them what they want to hear and don't want to hurt their feelings and the worst thing is when given good advice that conflicts with what they've been told, they dismiss it. This happens continuously. Remember, free advice is usually crap. It's the advice you pay for that's usually good. The 21st reason that, and last reason that um, investors fail, inventors fail, is that, you know, you just have bad luck. You know, sometimes you can, um, you know, you launch the day the GFC starts or you launch the day that 9-11 happens or there's a stock market crash or the government changes the legislation. There's a whole bunch of reasons and not much you can do about it, but you just dust yourself off, think of something else, go to work or you um, wait for better times. So they're just... 21 of the reasons why in excess of 95% of startups fail. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and we're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of business, don't hesitate to email me. It's bob at bobpritchard.com, and we will answer it. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter. It's going out right now for November. 
that sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. So get online, bobpritchard.com, and sign up. You're listening to Voice America Business, and I'll be back in a moment with a real lunatic. (laughs) Paul Bennett is a friend of mine, actually, but he's one of the world's most extreme sportsmen. He's an aerobatic champion and an air show stunt pilot with over 4,500 hours of flying time. And, you know, when you watch him perform, he either dazzles you with his absolutely ridiculous and unbelievably dangerous aerobatics that's, you know, they just defy gravity and aerodynamics, or they scare the living hell out of you. Either way, he puts on a great show, and I'll be back with Paul in just a moment. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs, people who are interesting and have got something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all become a little bit more successful. And we like to look for people who have become successful in unusual occupations. And today, we found a real bloody lunatic. Paul Bennett's one of the world's most extreme sportsmen. He's an aerobatic champion and an air show stunt pilot. He's got over 4,500 hours of flying time. Now, when you watch him perform... He either totally dazzles you with his absolutely ridiculous and unbelievable dangerous aerobatic manoeuvres that seem to defy gravity and aerodynamics, or he scares the absolute shit out of you. There's just (laughs) either one. So every time I see Paul flying in his aerobatic biplane known as Wolf Pitts Pro... I'm confident the only way that he'll get to go home is if somebody puts him together with half a gallon of super glue and carries him off in a bucket. (laughs) Um, During one flying display, 
pull will experience g-forces up to 10 times the force of gravity sounds like fun hmm um, Paul's got a real passion for aviation he enjoys nothing more than sharing this passion with the young and old as he travels the world displaying his talents Paul actually happens to be a friend of mine hi Paul welcome to the Bob Pritchard radio show on voice How America you, business I'm good okay how did you become interested in aviation and then aerobatic flight? Don't tell me. Don't tell me that when you were five years old, you woke up one morning and said, ah, I want to fly upside down and with my wingtips a foot from the ground just for fun. <laughs> I don't believe it. How did you do it? How did you get well, into it? Well, it didn't quite start that way, Bob. It was uh, an interesting road in the first place. I always loved aeroplanes. And when I was growing up, my dad was a pilot. My grandfather was a pilot, and um, I always flew model aeroplanes to start with. And then uh, one day I was one day I was flying model aeroplanes, and a friend of mine had gone solo in a in a two seat pit special. And he said, "Would you like to come for a ride?" So I I, I took him up on the offer and went for a, a ride. That was on a Sunday afternoon, and on Monday I was at the aero club trying to get my license, and I haven't stopped since. So. You know, it's one thing, now I've got to tell you, I've got to confess that I'm a great, not a great plane lover and I've had plenty of opportunities to go up in small planes, never taken them up. Um, so what, what possesses you to go from, you know, I, I suppose I can understand somebody wanting to go up there and fly, it's a quick way to get from A to B and, um, you know, the view's probably pretty good and and I can understand that, but what makes you want to do loop the loops and, and all the ridiculous things that you do for Mate, fun? There's no, there's no <laughs> better feeling in the world. It's just the biggest sense of freedom, and you've got total control. There's no one telling you what to do. As long as you've got control of that aeroplane, you've got the biggest sense of freedom you'll find anywhere. You know, like it, there's so many things you can do that exhilarating, you know, racing motorbikes or cars or... Um, you know, those type of things, speed in general, but aeroplanes is just something totally different, three-dimensional, and uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun, and when I'm up there, it's sort of like a different world. They do fall out of the sky, though, don't they? I guess they do. It's a, I guess that's a, something that we all have to face, But and it is dangerous. It's no good saying it's not, but, you know, the risk is a, is a calculated risk. It's been well thought out. The planning's been done. You don't start by just coming down flying near the ground and see what happens. You know, it's it's by trying all these tricks at 6,000 feet and then 5,000 and 4,000 and 3,000 until you get really good at it. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got to have done it several hundred times before you can bring it down to low level because at low level there's no second chance. Yeah, I, I, it worries me because I, I gave a speech in London or a couple of speeches in London with a guy from England who used to jump out of a biplane, used to walk out on the wing and jump out of a biplane and then land back in the biplane when it back, you know, he had some way of controlling his flight and he used to land back in the biplane when it came back around. And he had a spectacular opening video for his speech. It was great. And then the next time I was back in England, I was speaking to the um, the bureau, and I said, "Oh, how's Mark or whatever his name was?" And they said <laughs> he missed once. <laughs> he did. He missed once. That was all it there's, took. There's no future in missing, mate. <laughs> so you've been an aerobatic champion. Your class is one of the world's premier air show pilots. So what's the difference between? being a competition air um, pilot and 
wanting to be a ridiculous aerobatics. Competition pilots, in uh, I mean, there's, there's different grades of competition. So in Unlimited, that's the highest grade where I've competed before. And you don't come down quite as low as what you do in an air show. So the, the bottom of the, of the box, if you like, is, is quite a bit higher than at surface level. It's 100 metres, actually, wow. um, <laughs> which still isn't overly high, but definitely there's a bit of safety margin there. Yeah. But the, the competition aerobatics is about... Um, perfect precision, so vertical lines and 45 lines and, and the rolls have to be perfect. Everything's got to be exactly perfect, whereas air show flying is a, is still looks great if there's a lot of perfection in it, but there's there's a lot of very strange tricks that you can do um, that defy gravity, you know, tumbling-type manoeuvres that you'd, uh, most people would think it's impossible to do. You know, if I told you what I was going to go and do, go and do a forward flip or whatever, you'd say you're a lunatic, it's, how could you possibly do that? But that's that's what what people at air shows want to see. Well, do do people that go along to air shows go along to see that plane go thumping into the ground at three hundred miles an hour? No, I certainly hope they don't. I mean, I guess like anything, you, a bit like you, you get people who do. But um, I like to think that they they uh, they come to see some very experienced pilots do a great job and and be safe. I don't think anyone really likes seeing anyone get killed and I guess the difference between a car race is you know most of the like the NASCARs or whatever they they might hit the fence but it's very rare to see one get killed whereas you know in a plane crash if you hit the ground it's it's very unusual to see someone survive yeah um so how much insurance do you have Uh, come to think of it does anybody insure you you walk in and you say I want some insurance life insurance please and they say certainly sir what do you do well I fly planes you know a foot off the ground sideways and upside down and they what do they say yeah sure no worries sign here yeah no it's not quite like that it's, it's not the cheapest insurance in the world mate. but, <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. people will insure you will they yeah they will they will but it's not cheap and uh, you know I think they have a look a bit of a look at your history and your background and and make sure you, that you're not going to be the kamikaze pilot, that's for sure. <laughs> I guess if you're still alive, you're doing okay. Yeah. Um, now, recently you teamed up with Joel Brown, who's a freestyle motocross rider, to um, complete what's got to be described as an extraordinary and bloody dangerous stunt. Can Tell us about how that came about and, and tell the listeners what you do. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting thing, I guess. It's something I wanted to do for a while. I'm not really sure why, but I thought it was a, a cool thing. You know, I've I've sort of been watching these freestyle motocross guys, and and uh, you know, they I guess everyone who's in these type of sports is trying to lift the bar all the time and do do better and better things, but also try and keep it safe. So I thought, why not try the two together? And I met Joel. He's a great guy, and and it. And, uh, you know, he lives out in the middle of New South Wales in Australia. And we just got together and uh, and got the ramp there and, and set it up. And I did a few runs through the ramp at Knife Edge. And he did a few backflips over it so we could have a look at the height. We videoed it, made sure everything was going to work. And then and then we put it into action. And, and um, yeah, we did it. And it's, it's worked out great. And, yeah, we both had a good day. And, you know, we, we did it professionally and accurately and no one made a mistake so it ended well what do you mean by knife edge what does that mean so the plane's flying on its side on its side so uh, yeah so he does he does a loop the loop thing and you fly through the middle 
Yeah, so he jumps. That is from, ridiculous. It sort of is. <laughs> he, jump, he takes the, the up ramp and, the, and does a backflip in the middle and then lands on the down ramp, and I go knife edge between the ramps so the aeroplane's completely on its side. So how, how often would um, he have a spill doing something like that? He's been pretty good. He does a lot of shows and he, he hasn't come off too many times. I mean, like every motorbike rider. But you only got to come off once, don't you, if you've got a plane. How fast do these planes yeah, go? If he's ever going to come off, I don't want him to do it while I'm flying under him, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I mean, I was only <laughs> going through there at, uh, at 80 knots, so that oh. seemed to be the best speed for both of us. But that's because the aeroplane's on its side. You're using a lot of power to do it, but you've got the nose right up in the air and and banked over on its side, and, and it, we had a bit of clearance. It was uh, it worked out quite well, really. How, how do you practice something like that? I mean, you know, you you only get to um, how long? First of all, how long does it take you to develop a stunt like that? You know, do you you come up with it, you sit down, you plan it. Did, does that exercise yeah, you, take you plan months? It, you work out the speeds. You work out what you know. I'm, I already knew before they turned up. I already knew how what the distance between the ramps needed to be and what the height that he could jump would be at that distance. We had to make sure that the wind was not going to be too much of a factor. Um, we had to make sure that I was going to have enough run-up to get set up on the right angle to do it. And, yeah, I just did a little bit of practice. I mean, I've, I'm used to flying low level. I practice, you know, several times a week every day, in fact, and down to low level. So I'm pretty comfortable down near the ground. And um, I just did a few practice runs to make sure everything was good, so I could have my eye in, and and um, yeah, it was all good. It's uh, it it sort of looks pretty interesting to see it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I remember a guy named Evil Knievel. He used to practice a lot too. He broke he broke just about every bone in his body fifteen times, I think. Um, Indeed, I remember him when I was growing up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, how the hell do you practice it? I mean, do you just go out the first time and do it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, we just, we planned it out. We had a few discussions about it. He came up the day before. We talked about it, drew some pictures. Um, I did a little bit of flying so he could see where I was in relation to the ground. He did a couple of backflips, and then, yeah, pretty much we just went and did it. It was, uh, you know, if he does his job correctly and I do mine correctly, it's all good. Gosh, you've got to get it right the first time, don't you? I mean, you can't sort of say, oops, made a mistake. Can somebody go and pick up the two halves of this motocross rider and get on the phone and see if you can find another one? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like that. We, we don't want to, <laughs> we certainly don't want to make a mistake. So, I mean, I wouldn't do it with someone who wasn't very good at backflipping. You know, like he, he does it day in, day out. So, you certainly don't want to do it. And I, I'm, you know, I know there's plenty, there's guys in around the world that, that are pretty good at it, but. You know, you've got to get comfortable with someone and you've got to have someone that's got the right attitude and they want to do things properly. I'm not interested in half doing it. I'm not really, I'm not interested at all in having accidents. So you've got to have the right person and the, and the right team involved. Yeah. Do you ever, um, like when you're doing a really dangerous stunt like the one with a motorcycle, do you ever get really apprehensive? Do you ever get in the cockpit and think, oh, geez, I'm not sure about this or... or even get scared. Is there ever a point where you think, oh, shit, what have I done? I'm not sure scared's the right word, but you, you do get nervous. And when you stop 
like I always get nervous before I get in the aeroplane. I think when you stop getting nervous, then you're not taking it seriously enough. And I think you like this is this type of thing. You got to take it incredibly serious. You know, I got three young kids and a wife. I always want to come home to them. Yeah, I never want to never want to leave them on their own. So, you know, you got to do everything to the best of your ability. Maybe one day if something goes wrong, you know, maybe I won't be able to help it. But while I've got control over it, I want to do the best job that we can do and make it professional and, and perfect. To be honest, how many how many stunt pilots are there around the world? Is there millions of them, or is there hundreds of good ones, or how many is there? No, there's not. That you'd be lucky to see a hundred of them around the world. I would think. Really? Okay. So, have you ever had a crash or a really close call? No, I've never had a. I've never had a crash. I've never really had a close call, um, but I've I've thought about it a lot. I've seen it. I've seen it happen a lot. Mm. Um, I just want to make sure I always do the best job I can and and hope that it doesn't happen to me. I, I guess if I if I do everything to the best of my ability and have the best machinery, the best maintenance, well then you know in theory at least you've given yourself the best possible chance. What um. What influence does outside factors have? For example, you know, when you, you're in a 747 and you're sailing along and all of a sudden you hit clear air or whatever you hit and you get turbulence that you don't know is there. Or, because you're so close to the ground, do you not get any of those influences? I mean, is there anything that's likely to come out of the blue from um, Mother Nature that's likely to set you on your butt? You're probably more likely having a bird strike down low. Um, you know, you, those type of stunts that we do, you're not going to do it on a day when it's incredibly windy and, and rough conditions. Right. Um, you know, so you, you you just don't do it on any old day, you know. You you need to have a good cloud base. You need to have not a ridiculous amount of wind. A little bit of wind's good, but not too much. And and hopefully, you know, none of those things can affect you. But the biggest thing that you've got to make sure is right is that, you've got, that you're in the right frame of mind. You've got to think, You've got to be in the exact right frame of mind. You know, if you've had a fight or um, things just aren't going right that day, well, then you've got to, you've got to recognise that and, and pull it up. You mentioned bird strike. Um, can a bird bring down a plane? Sure can. It brought down that big jet onto the Hudson River. Oh, uh, yeah, that was a flock of them, wasn't it, or was that just one bird? No, I think it was a flock of them. But, but So uh, with, your, with your plane, your... How close to the ground would a wing get under, you know, under some sort of extreme um, um, manoeuvre? How close to the ground would you tip your wing be? Oh, I normally down to a couple of metres. When I did the, that bike jump with Joel, I was down to half a metre. Half but, a metre. So yeah, eighteen I mean, inches. On takeoff, it's you know, it's banked over. It's um, it's normally uh, probably you know, say a metre normally. So let's say half a metre, 18 inches off the ground. You don't need too much to go wrong, do you? No, you don't want to have a bad day. What if you ran into a bird at that um, at that height? Wouldn't be perfect, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if it's a small enough that, bird, you'd just knock him out of the way. That has got to be the quote of the century. <laughs> it wouldn't be perfect. Jesus. Um <laughs> You, you display um, aircraft at air shows, in, including a few um, rare warbirds. What's what's unusual about these planes? Is it just that they were made so long ago and they don't make them anymore, or is there 
With the Warbirds, yeah, that's for sure. With the stump plane that I'm using, the, the uh, aerobatic biplane, it's built by Steve Wolf in America. It's a fantastic machine. There's only two of them in the world, so mine in Australia and Sean Tucker's in America. Um, they're a work of art, you know, a, a hand-built, beautiful piece of machinery with a lot of lot of power and, and a lot of cool features, big control surfaces, so they're... They've got the capability of doing some really cool tricks, sort of more more along the lines of what model aircraft can do. So um, they're, they're, they're built specifically for stunt flying? Yeah, they are, yeah. Yeah, they, they're, uh, they're built very strong and, and you know, fast roll rate and, and a lot of pitch angle, big elevators and big rudder and a lot of power up the front, fantastic propeller, Hartzell claw propeller and 400 horsepower, Lycon engine, it's um, yeah, it's pretty hard to beat those type of machines. And these but are the warbirds. Built. You know, I'm I'm, I'm yeah. lucky. I, I fly a lot of warbirds as well, and I've got lucky to own a few myself. So, you know, I fly 1942. We're away. There's only four left in the world. 600 horsepower um, airplane. It was um, used in the war. I've got a Grumman Avenger, a 2,000 horsepower. Um, pretty much the biggest single engine bomber in the war. That, that was used um, on the carriers, and you know they're, they're cool machines to have at air shows, and they're great things to fly. You know, they're unreal pieces of machinery. They've been designed really well. Yeah, they're old, and yes, you've got to give them a lot of love and attention and maintenance. But you know, the cool thing is when you when you fly those type of airplanes, every time you strap in, it makes you think of the people who've come before us in the war. You know, it really makes you think of them. Yeah. Well. But- those planes back, you're talking about 70 years, um, what was the um, engineering standards like on those planes 70 years ago? I mean, we look at ca- how cars have improved and all the safety measures, say, that have gone into cars. I would have thought that a plane that was built 70 years ago, particularly in the rush to push them out for the war, probably wouldn't have been all that well engineered. Am I right? Some of them are fantastic. You know, the engineering is brilliant. They're strong. Um, you know, considering they're 70 years old, the reliability is still pretty good. You know, I mean, obviously things like uh, hydraulic systems and air systems, fuel systems, all those type of things have to be upgraded because, you know, pipes get old and fittings get old and that type of thing. But the actual the engineering of the structure, the, the metalwork, the riveting, it's all done fantastic. I mean... You know, compared to these days, obviously there's a lot more exotic materials, carbon fibres and kevlars and epoxy resins and things like that, but these things from 1942, 43, 44, they are fantastic and you can rebuild them to just like brand new. Wow. Okay. So what does the... F- <laughs> talking about the future, it seems funny. Um, so what does the future hold for Paul Bennett? I just want to do as many air shows as we can around the world, keep designing new um, weird and wonderful aerobatic manoeuvres. What's Um, left to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, you you read about um, um, David Copperfield. David Copperfield spends something like $250,000 every time he designs a new trick. Um, So... Are there any tricks left to do? I mean, what else can you do apart from going straight up and coming straight down and rolling the thing and <laughs> flying in between bloody motorbikes? I mean, what else is left to do? 
there there is there's a there's a lot of things left to do to be honest. I mean, you got a you know, big some, dream. Some of the cool things is uh, is you know you you try and do some weird things with a model and then go and try and create it in, in you know with a full size airplane. But some of the things, some of the maneuvers that that we can do with these airplanes now, you know, ten years ago you just would have said absolutely impossible. You never get an airplane to do that, and it, it's like. You know, 10 years ago, people didn't backflip motorbikes either, but now everyone, well, not everyone, but, you know, there's a lot of people doing it. Now there's double backflips and forward flips and all the rest. So the the, the envelope is endless. It's just a matter of you've got you to gotta want to be able to do it. You've got to put a lot of lot of effort into um, trying it, doing it safely. You know, the, the trick with aerobatic flying is you've got you to gotta use the aeroplane to help you do it. You use the momentum of, of which way it's rolling, you use the called the gyroscopic procession, so the torque of the engine to, to to help you make it tumble in certain ways. And you've got to try and trick it, which is... Um, <laughs> tricky. <laughs> tricky, that's right, exactly. So uh, did I hear you right before when you said you use models to try the stunts? So you, you go out with a model aeroplane and actually try the manoeuvres before you try them in a real plane? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I do try. Things that I know are, are, are going to, well, I don't know they're going to work, but I know what the outcomes are. I just try them in the real one. But sometimes if you want to try something really wild, try it in the model and just see what, what happens and you can try and get a picture of how it's going to work. The yeah. only problem, sometimes compared to the, when you compare the full size to the model, the model is sort of too light and, and it's got too much power compared to what we've got. So um, do you use you know, a model that replicates as close as possible to what your plane is? Yep. So there's yep. a there's a fair there's bit. There's a few few models around that are identical scale models in my airplane. Right. And I guess there's no drinking before you go up there either, right? Negative, no way. <laughs> That's not a good combination. Okay, so have you got a particular stunt that you really want to do? Something that you really think would be very cool that at some point in your future you want to try? I want to be able to be able to do multiple forward flips. But what does that mean? I want it to go end over end, but I want to be able to do it continuously in a forward motion. End over end, like acrobatic. Like yeah, end over Instead end, of yeah. rolling side to side, end over end, like you'd we be doing do cartwheels or I something. I want to do three or four of them. That's what I want to be able to do, but we haven't quite conquered that yet. It'll happen. Trust me, it'll happen. Hmm. Okay. And... Um, What's the biggest show you've got coming up? You've got one in Korea coming up, haven't you? Yeah, we've got a couple of shows coming up in Korea and a big show in, in um, Australia in, at the end of February, Avalon Air Show. That's the biggest air show that Australia's got. Right. And there's, there's quite a few other ones around the world as well that we, we're talking to at the moment. So that's all I'd like to. I've done quite a few shows in Korea and obviously I've done a lot of shows in Australia, but I'd like to, to travel to a few other parts of the world and... and um, have a good look around and pretty hard have the opportunity to do some shows. Yeah, pretty hard to do, have a good look around when you're barrel rolling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul, we've been talking to Paul Bennett, professional lunatic. Mate, thanks very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business. Now, thanks, Bob. It's been great. If you'd thanks like to know... Eh? Sorry? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, mate. If you'd like to know more about Paul... There are a plethora of fantastic articles on Google, and you can find out more by Google. Just just Google Paul Bennett Air Shows, 
and you get a whole heap of stuff. And um, if you can go onto the um, go onto my uh, my website, look up today's show, and you can actually see what Paul looks like. Now you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'm going to be back with you right after this short break. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show welcome back to the bob pritchard straight talking absolutely no bullshit business radio show and it's coming to you this week on my way back to sao paulo in brazil and to those of you listening in brazil keep listening we really appreciate it uh, i love this segment because um it applies equally. The answers that I give applies equally to um, small businesses, large business. In fact, no matter what business you're in or what part of the world you're in, it's equally applicable. My first email today is from John Alexander from New Orleans in Louisiana. Love New Orleans. Down there not that long ago. It was great. Uh, dear Bob, I love your program. It's been a great help to me, and it also convinced me to buy your book. Do you have it on a CD so I can listen to it? in the car to and from work. Well, matter of fact, we do have an audio version. So if you go to Amazon, then you will be able to um, be able to get it. Um, you're reading in my book about the need to determine the lifetime value of customers. That's interesting because we're talking about it as one of the main reasons that um, entrepreneurs fail. So why is it so important? Well, firstly, John, thanks for your kind words. I really do appreciate it. And, um, you know, as I said before, uh, people think that because they've invented a product that people are going to beat a path to their door. And uh, I hear it over and over and over again. The reality is the first few customers are easy. They get harder and harder and harder. And uh, too often the... um, cost of acquiring the customer is actually higher than the lifetime value of that customer. Well, there's not much future in that. So you have to be able to require, to acquire your customers for much less than the profit they're going to generate in the lifetime of doing business with you. I mean, that's blatantly obvious. However, the vast majority of entrepreneurs that I see fail to carefully figure out the realistic cost of, acqui- uh, of customer acquisition. Um, it, it's not until you sit down with the entrepreneur and work through the business plan that the entrepreneur goes, ding, this business model is not going to work because I'm spending too much money to try and get a customer. Um, you know, when you take into account all of the costs that are involved, and it's not just I'm going to run an ad that's going to cost me $1,000 and therefore I'm going to get one customer, therefore the cost of acquisition is $1,000, you've got to take into account the rest of your operation. 
all of the things that you need to have in place to support getting a customer. Wow. And that changes the um, mathematical equation considerably. But if you look it up in my book, um, since you now have it, look up uh, customer acquisition cost and it's there. Um, Now, since you've got a copy of... um, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition. I will send you a copy of Marketing Magic. That's a book that I wrote a few years ago with um, um, Tracy and Conrad Levinson and Robert Bly and a bunch of others. So I'll send you out that. It's a very interesting book, marketing from a number of different perspectives. It's good. My second email today is from Elliot Brahm. Braham, Brahm, probably, from Christchurch in New Zealand, who also asked a similar question. Dear Bob, I listen to you every week on my iPhone on my way to work in the morning here in New Zealand. You've been a big help to my business. You talk about, here we go again, you talk about lifetime customer value. How does this relate to how I set my prices? Well, um, as I mentioned a second ago, you've got to take into account the entire cost of your sales and marketing functions. This includes um, salaries and marketing programs, lead generation, travel, everything that goes into it, and divide it by the number of customers that you acquired during the same period of time. So if running the business cost you $100,000 and you've got 100 customers, then it's costing you $1,000 to get a customer. If you're only making $50 profit over the life of the customer, you are in trouble. So um, you need to work it out very carefully and then either you cut your overheads or you target a hell of a lot more customers. And uh, so to determine the life lifetime value of the customer, you've got to look at the gross margin that's associated with that customer, take into account all of the costs, including installation, delivery, support, operational expenses, everything for the the whole period that the customer stayed with you. And uh, for businesses that have got one-time fees, it's pretty simple. But for most businesses that have recurring sales, it's uh, computed by taking the monthly revenue over an average period that the customer stays with you. So it's really not hard. You just got to do it. And because um, most businesses have a series of other functions such as, you know, general, administrative, um, product development, now, you know, they're um, additional expenses beyond sales and marketing and delivering the product. The, um, if to be profitable, therefore, you'll want the cost of a cost of acquiring the customers to be much less than the lifetime customer value by a significant multiple, not just a little bit, but by a lot, because otherwise you need to, you're not going to be able to cover those costs. So in my experience, as a sort of rough rule of thumb, I reckon that um, um, the break even needs to be a minimum of three times and probably up to 10 times what it costs you to acquire a customer. So um, the cost of acquiring customers and the lifetime customer value is going to have a direct influence on your selling prices. So you know you have to you have to set your prices so that you get back your acquisition cost by a multiple. 
So it's very difficult to decrease your customer acquisition costs frequently. Um, and it's often quite difficult to raise your prices. So, you know, it's a balance of those two things. So very few businesses, though, allow for this and, and or even consider it before they embark on their journey and become one of the 97% of businesses that fail. Elliot, we're going to send you out a copy of my latest book, which is Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which I'm sure that you'll enjoy and get a lot out of it to assist your business. Now, if you're a regular regular, regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that um, my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Now, you've seen those things on television where they say, do not try this at home. Well, it's a bit like that with Paul Bennett that I spoke to today acrobatic air champion, do not try that at home. (laughs) Don't jump off the roof and think you can do a triple somersault before you hit the ground. You probably won't be able to. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. So until the same time next, oh, don't forget, my new newsletter, my monthly newsletter goes out to 16,000 executives every month, has been for about 13 or 14 years, um, is coming out right now. So go on to bobpritchard.com and put your name down and make sure you get it. So until the same time next week, this is Bob Pritchard, hoping you have a fantastic and successful week and kick some butt. And remember, if you're not learning, your competition probably is. And when you meet head-to-head, if they know more than you do, they will win. Now, we've all come too far, worked too bloody hard to let some other bastard win. So continue to learn everything there is to learn about your business because those who listen to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show are winners. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.